chapter 17. These last chapters of Judges are focused on two specific things. First, the Levites, who are the spiritual leaders. We're going to be introduced to an unnamed Levite in chapter 17, another unnamed Levite later. And so what it's going to show you is not only are the political military leaders all jacked up, but the spiritual leaders are all jacked up too. The other focus here is on the everyday normal people. So in chapter 17, we're going to be introduced to an average Israelite household being led by Micah. And then we're going to be introduced to the mass of people, the crowds of Israel itself. And the idea is with flawed leaders over this amount of period of time is going to end up in flawed people. Yes, are there still everyday normal people who are still incredibly godly? Yes, welcome to the book of Ruth. But at the same time, overall, the masses are jacked up. And we know that. When the, le when the leaders start doing things, the people think that's acceptable. I mean, one of the greatest examples is Clinton, when he got involved in all of his sex scandals. And then can this star in the media just started to just say, let's just plaster on the news over and over and over again. And at that time period, they did studies. I mean, they're always doing studies with high, schools all the high school kids all the time. And most high school kids had no idea what oral sex was. They had no idea what any of that kind of stuff was. And Clinton just talked about it and talked about it. And he made it sound like it was okay. He said it's not really sex. And, he, and the national leader approved it. The really cool saxophone playing who hung out with celebrities approved of this kind of behavior. And the media almost like approved of it. And all the studies after that showed that that sexual behavior skyrocketed among teenagers in high schools. And it went from practically no teenagers having any awareness of what that really was, let alone being involved in it, to it is now very common. And so when, I was so when I started growing up and getting more into high school and college, the statistic was it had gotten from like by the age of 18, one-fourth of everybody has had sex. And then by the time I was in college and going into seminary, it had dropped down to by the age of 16 or 15, every one out of four kids have already had sex. And now the current studies are out of by the age of 14, 12. One out of four kids have had sex. And by the age of 16, 25% of them already had sexually transmitted disease. And there are two things that have led to that. The hippie movement and Clinton, who was a product of the hippie movement. So when he began to say it's okay, and they've done this. There's lots of studies that the minute leaders say that this is okay, it follows. I've noticed that the way that people talk on Facebook has degraded drastically since Trump. Trump has approved of this way that you talk of people. And I'm noticing that even on Facebook and the social media, the way that we talk about each other has drastically just in the last couple of years gone down. And it's okay to bash everybody now. And it's almost approvable. And so this kind of stuff, there are studies, tons of studies, like Top Gun. And it goes every way. Top Gun, um, people massively flock to the um, Air Force to sign to the Air Force after Top Gun. When um, Bet R Brett, R um, Brett, Brett, oh, I just went blank on his last name. The guy from Gone with the Wind, Brett, Red, 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 Red,
when he took his shirt off and he wasn't wearing a t-shirt, t-shirt sales plummeted in America for the next decade after that. And when um, James Dean slashed tires in a rebel without a cause, um, the neighborhoods where they had never had any problems, all of a sudden the slashing of tires and vandalism was happening everywhere. There are tons and tons of studies that have shown the minute something happens in media with a leader or somebody very famous, it immediately, instantaneously, within months, translates to the everyday normal people in their communities. And so this is what the book of Judges is showing, is that when you, as leaders, act like this, the people will emulate you. Now, if you're an incredibly godly person, will everybody become godly? No, there's always exceptions. If you're ungodly, does every American become ungodly? No, there's always exceptions. But the massive, the, 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 the majority of the statistics say yes. This is what happens. This is why you have to pick your leaders carefully. And this is why when things are said like, who cares about Trump's character as long as he gets things done, is incredibly ignorant and incredibly dumb. And so this is what the, we're going into now. Now we're going to see how it's affected the people. So chapter 17, verse 1. There was a man named Micah from the Ephraimite hill country. And he said to his mother, You know the 1,100 pieces of silver which were stolen from you, about which I heard you pronounce a curse? Look here, I had the silver. I stole it. But now I'm giving it back to you. At first you're like, okay, this Micah is a pretty good guy. He, he stole money from his mother. And you're like, but that's not good. But at least he grew a conscience and he decided to return it to her. The problem with that is, why is he returning it? He's afraid of the curse. His mother pronounced a curse on whoever took it. And he overheard the curse and becomes afraid that it's going to affect him and so he decided to return it. So there's a couple. And then not only that, how much did he steal? 1,100 pieces of silver. That's the same amount that each Philistine ruler was going to pay, pay Delilah to betray. That's intentional. We talked about that. This is enough to retire. This is like winning the lottery and never having to work again. So it's not like he went into his mom's wallet and pulled out like five bucks to go see the movies. This is like he stole her entire life savings. In fact, it might be the dowry for one of his sisters, for all we know. Or, or the, her dowry that she got when she got married. We don't know, but this is lots of money. This is like stealing a million dollars or at least a couple hundred thousand dollars from somebody. So he's the kind of person who doesn't just steal change laying around the house. He steals a life savings. People go to jail for that. Then... He's the kind of person who believes that a curse pronounced by a woman will actually affect his life, which means he's involved in superstition. And he actually believes that this superstition actually has control over his life and will affect his future. Then we find out that he returned it only because he was afraid of what would happen to him, not from the right motives. And he stole this from his mother. So we're introduced to a Micah who's like completely messed up. Now, that's not uncommon. And that happens in America all the time. That's, it doesn't matter what time period in history you are. That kind of stuff is happening. The next part is what really makes you realize, wait a minute, something is not right. So the mother responds. 
Verse 19, his mother said, may Yahweh reward you. Okay, here's a good godly woman who had a son who went a little astray. When he gave it back to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver, his mother said, I solemnly dedicate this silver to Yahweh. Well, that's good. It will be for my son's benefit. Well, how can you dedicate this to God and it's for your son's benefit? We will use it to make a carved image and a metal image. When he gave the silver back to his mother, she took the 200 pieces of silver to a silversmith who made them into a carved image and a metal image, and she put them in Micah's house. So mother is blessing him, thanking Yahweh, all in the process saying, let's thank Yahweh by building an idol with this money. Now remember too, she's also the mother who curses people. So she's cursing people and blessing and praising God all with the same mouth. And little does she know as she's praising, blessing God and trying to serve God by building an idol, she's actually bringing a curse down on her according to Deuteronomy 27. They are completely oblivious. They are completely oblivious. They have no idea that Yahweh is drastically different. They have no idea what the morality of Yahweh is. And this shows you that we're now in a day and age where everybody is using the name Yahweh, but now it means nothing. At the beginning of the story, when somebody went back and forth between Yahweh and Elohim, it said a lot about what they were doing. Now we're at a point where we, we can't even figure out. It's kind of like the word Christian. It stopped meaning anything in America. So what did the, the Protestant Americans do to try to develop? They developed the word evangelical. Let's create the word evangelical was created for the sole purpose of trying to say everybody's calling themselves a Christian anymore, even people who are not Christians. So let's create a word that refers to only like true Bible be believing. Now that word doesn't even mean anything anymore. And this is what happens with the culture as we, we, we dumb down the meaning. You know that every study that is done in the last couple of decades, Barna Institute, Christian Institute, non Christian Institute, has shown that when they poll Americans, anywhere between 70 to 80% of Americans say they are Christians. But when they ask those Christians, do you believe that Jesus is God in the only way of salvation? Depending on the poll, but anywhere between like 10 to 20% of them say yes. Only 80%, that's, that's 10 to 20% of the 80% actually believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Yet 80% of Americans say they're Christians. The word Christian means nothing. My favorite one is when Oprah's like, I'm a Christian who believes that Jesus came to teach us that we're gods. You have to understand something. This is where we've entered. This is the culture where we've entered. These terms mean nothing. Yahweh means nothing. Israelite means nothing. Covenant means nothing. We're just doing whatever we want and we're throwing all these Christian jargons out. I mean, how many times have you seen crosses on people's necks? Especially in Hollywood and music videos. And, and they're singing about horrible things and they got a crossing on their neck. She's building this idol. Then she put in Micah's house. Now, this man, Micah, owned a shrine. So he already had a shrine. Now we'll add an idol to it. And, one of his, and, and he made an ephod. Now we talked about ephod because the last time we saw that was in the Gideon story. And now you realize, oh, does he think having an ephod in his house is okay because Gideon started that? 
and maybe tons of other leaders are now doing it. So some personal idols and hired one of his sons to serve as a priest. So now we find out that he's got a temple or a shrine and a golden image and an ephod in his house. The only place that you're allowed to worship God is in the tabernacle. He's worshiping God in his own house with his own shrine. Not only that, he's not really worshiping God. Then he's got an ephod, which only belongs to the priest. He's not a priest. He's an Ephraimite. And then he makes his son the priest in his house, which his son is not allowed to be a priest because only a Levite can be a priest. So everything in this is completely contrary to God. And so this segment ends with, In those days Israel had no king, and each man did what was right in his own eyes. And that really is what it comes down to. Israel's come to the point where they're all using the word temple, Yahweh, let's worship him, let's praise you in the name of Yahweh, bless you in the name of Yahweh, worship him. But they're doing it all according to what they think is right. Now, we talked about this statement at the beginning of the book, but we're going to break it down again. Remember, the idea is not that if they had a king, they would all do what is right. Because remember, they already had a king. It was Gideon. Then we had another king with Jephthah. And we had another king with Gideon's son. And we had another king with those minor judges who made all their sons kings. We've already had little minor kings here. And they're getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And if you look throughout human history, kings have never been good. The idea is not that if they had a king, everybody would be godly. The point is if they had a First and foremost, <coughs> Yahweh is their king. This is in contrast to the fact that they're no longer following the law, but they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And if they're following the law, then they have made Yahweh their king. And the main point that is being made here is that they are not making Yahweh their king. And that's why they're following their own hearts. But the secondary thing is, that they're, if they were following a um, human king, which God has no problem with a human king because he's going to institute it later, but they, are not, they don't have a Deuteronomic king. According to Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 through 20, a king that is limited in his power and is all about the glory of God rather than his own self-purposes. And that's the point. And because there is no Yahweh truly ruling over them, not that he's not, but they're not acknowledging it, and that there is no actual godly leader ruling over them. They're just doing what's right in their own eyes. And if you translate this into modern day terminology, you can say because they were not following the will of Yahweh, everybody followed their heart and had it their way and just did it in their eye universe. Because that's basically what we hear on television all the time. Just follow your heart. Just follow your heart. This is the American slogan. This is the American slogan. This is, if there is a slogan that really is America, it is follow your heart. Follow your heart. Verse 7, there was a man from Bethlehem and Judah, and he was a Levite who had been temporarily residing among the tribe of Judah. The man left the town of Bethlehem and Judah to find another place to live. And he came to the Ephraimite hill country and made his way to Micah's house. Now, if you're reading this, you're thinking, oh, he is so in trouble. Because one of the jobs of the priest was not just to do the sacrifices. Now remember, if he's a priest, he's in the line of Aaron. 
Only the, the line of Aaron was allowed to be priest. All the other Levites served as like pastoral roles throughout the land, or they helped in the tabernacle. But only the descendants of Aaron had the right to be doing animal sacrifices and that kind of stuff. So one of the jobs of the Levites, all the Levites, is to eradicate and kill anything that is in rival to God's worship. If anybody goes into the tabernacle defiling it, they're to kill them. If they find any form of idolatry anywhere in the land, they are to kill those people. So one of their primary tasks is to kill people who violate the idolatry, the, the not having other gods. So if a Levite shows up at Micah's house, your first thought is Micah's dead. Micah's dead. Because when Phineas found people doing that, he killed him, and God said, he's my man, and I'm going to bless him forever. His line. Micah said to him, where do you come from? He replied, I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah. I'm looking for a new place to live. Now you're a little suspicious because you're kind of like, why isn't this guy where he belongs? If he's an Ephraimite, he should be serving a Manasseh or Ephraim somewhere. And if he's a Levite, he's obviously old enough to be traveling around. So, and it's not like job market where he just got laid off. I mean, this is ordained by God for him to be a Levite. There's always something to do, especially in this time period. Yet he doesn't seem to have any direction in his life, any purpose. Micah said to him, stay with me, become my advisor and priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver per year, plus clothes and food. So the Levite agreed to stay with the man. The young man was like a son to Micah. So we're told now that the priest, the guy who's responsible, because later we're going to be told that he is the grandson of Gershom, who is the son of Moses. This is the line of Moses. This guy is a descendant of Moses. That means he's part of the Kohites. And that means he's responsible for sacrifices and all that kind of stuff in the temple. And he is now serving as a priest, not in the tabernacle, but in somebody's house, and with an idol. And he's doing it for money. This is what the priest has become. They're selling themselves out to the highest bidder for money, and they don't care about the idolatry. Now, this is also important, too, because he's giving him 10 pieces of shekels. This is a huge sum of money, too. And he's all has all of his food and clothing provided for him. Verse 12, Micah paid the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in Micah's house. And Micah said, Now I know that God will make me rich because I have this Levite as my priest. So he sees the priest as a lucky charm. I've got a priest in my house now. Now I'm really going to be blessed. But he's not just thinking like, wow, God's really going to be with me and my family will go well and will be godly. He says, God will make me rich. That's all God is to him, is making wealthy, which isn't surprise from the guy who stole from his mother. <laughs> So he thinks having a priest will automatically make him wealthy and make him rich. Now notice that this goes back to Barak, where Barak said, I will only serve you if the prophet goes with me, because if the prophet goes with me, I'm guaranteed of success. And now Micah's thinking the same way. If, the prophet, if a Levite priest is with me, I'm guaranteed of success. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, Israel had no king, 
And that's it. Because it assumes that you already know what the rest of it is. Now notice that this is the second time that that's been mentioned and the story's not even over with. The narrator just wants to make you sure that you remember this. The Danite tribe was looking for a place to settle because at that time they did not yet have a place to call their own among the tribes of Israel. Now what's wrong with that statement? Dan doesn't have a territory in all of Israel. They did. God gave them territory. Specific territory. In fact, it's right next to the Ephraimites where Micah is. It's on the coast. But this is the way that Dan's thinking. Dan's thinking we don't have a land, which means Dan has been unable to take their land and conquer it. And if they're unable to conquer the land, then that means they haven't been obedient to God and trusting him. So the first thing we know about Dan so far is that Dan is not trusting God, they're not obedient, and they can't take the land, and so they think we have no land. So they decide they're going to go out and find a land. The Danites sent out from their whole tribe five representatives, capable men from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and explore it. So this sounds like Jericho all over again with the spies. We're going to spy out the land. They said to them, go, explore the land. And they came to the Ephraimite hill country and spent the night at Micah's house. As they approached Micah's house, they recognized the accent of the young Levite. Because remember, the Levite is close to them. So they stopped there and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? He told them what Micah had done for him, saying, He hired me and became his priest. They said to him, Seek a divine oracle for us, so we can know if we will be successful on our mission. And the priest said to them, Go with confidence. Yahweh will be with you on your mission. They go to the priest and they see a priest and they're like, Oh, give us an oracle. Tell us how we'll go on our mission. Normally, the priest is supposed to consult the Urim and the Thummim from the ephod. But that's in Shiloh, where the tabernacle is. So you go to that, and you pray to God, and then you roll these things, and depending on turns up, God gives you an answer. Because remember, the Holy Spirit isn't in people, so the Holy Spirit doesn't communicate to people at this time because it's not living inside of them. So these, this is the means that God devised. Or a prophet, but right now there's no prophets. But he does it. He doesn't seek an oracle. He just says, yeah, Yahweh is with you. He hasn't consulted God. He hasn't prayed. He's actually lying. He's a priest is now lying to them that Yahweh is with them when Dan hasn't done anything to deserve God being with them. So he gives them a false sense of blessing, just like Micah's mother's sense of blessing was completely empty and false and meaningless. So the five men journeyed on and arrived in Laish. And they noticed that the people there were living securely, like the Sidonians do, undisturbed and unsuspecting. No conqueror was troubling them in any way, and they lived far from the Sidonians, had no dealings with anyone. They go all the way north of Israel, <coughs> almost out of the territory of Israel. And they find a land where the people living in the city, and they are innocent they are peaceful. They are separated from everybody else. They're undisturbed and they're unprotected. Now, why is that important? Let's keep reading. When the Danites returned to their tribe in Zor and Eshtal, their kinsmen asked them, how did it go? And they said, come on, let's attack them, for we saw their land is very good. You seem lethargic, but don't hesitate to invade and conquer the land. 
when you evade, you will encounter unsuspecting people. The land is wide. God is handing it over to you, a place that lacks nothing on earth. They describe this in the same way that spies describe Israel. But notice that they say, let's go attack these unsuspecting people. They will never see it coming. They can't defend themselves. We'll go, and we know we'll have victory because God is with us. Where did they get the idea that God was with them? From the priest. The priest had no idea what they were planning. He just gave them permission to attack an innocent, undefended, unsuspecting town. Because he just willy-nilly said, God is with you, go. And they're taking that to heart. Now this is sad, because the Danites were given land. And they had every right to attack the people in that land, because God told them to. Yet they failed to do it. So now they're finding innocent people who are unsuspecting and undefending, and they're going to attack them. These people are not described as Canaanites. The narrator will make it very clear. In fact, there's good evidence that they might be an Israelite town. So they're going to attack their own people, just like Gideon did, just like Jephthah did. And they're going to attack their own people and slaughter them who have never done anything wrong. They're unprotected because they couldn't attack the land that they were actually given permission by God to attack. They transferred it to somebody else. So 600 Danites, that's overkill for a peaceful town. Fully armed, set out for Zorah and Eshtal. And they went up from the camp of Kirith Jerim and Judah to this place. That place is called the Camp of Dan. It is west of Kirith Jerim. Oh, by the way, there's a little hint here. Eshtal is where the spies found those grapes. They're already living in a very good land that God gave them, but they're going after another land. Verse 13. From there they traveled from Ephraim hill country and arrived at Micah's house. The five men who had gone to spy out the land of Laish said to their king, kinsmen, do you realize, do you realize that inside these houses, houses are an ephod, some personal idols and a carved image and metal image? Decide now what you want to do. They stopped there, went inside the young Levite's house, which belonged to Micah, and asked him how he was doing. Meanwhile, the 600 Danites, fully armed, stood at the entrance of the gate, and the five men who had gone to spy out the land broke in and stole the carved images and the ephod and the personal idols and the metal images while the priests were standing at the entrance to the gate and the 600 fully armed men. Notice that keeps repeating the 600 fully armed men. This is a very scary thing. Now, it's also intentional because 600 is going to keep popping up over and over in this story. When these men broke into Micah's house and stole the carved image, the ephod, and the personal idols, and the metal image, and the priest said to them, What are you doing? They said to him, Shut up! Put your hand over your mouth and come with us. You can be our advisor. And the priests, and priests, wouldn't it be better to be a priest of an entire Israelite tribe than just one man's family? So the priest calls them out on stealing. And you're like, Well, at least he knows stealing's wrong. Until they say, Hey, would you get more glory for being the priest of one guy or for an entire tribe? Yes, you can make more money. People will think you're cooler. The priest was happy and he took the ephod and the personal idols and the carved image and joined the group. What's happening to Micah is what he did to his mother. The priest is selling himself out to the highest bidder. He's not just approving idolatry. 
He is not just doing this for money, but he is literally doing it for the highest of bidder. He's going to keep changing loyalties. Now, why the Danites don't ever think that this might not happen to them one day. Verse 21, they turned and went on their way, but they walked behind the children and the cattle and their possessions. And after they had gone a good distance from Micah's house, Micah's neighbors gathered together and caught up with the Danites. So Micah forms a posse and chases down these thieves. When they called out to the Danites, the Danites turned around to Micah. Why have you gathered together? He said, you stole my gods that I made as well as this, as this priest. And then went away. What do I have left? How can you have an, uh, the audacity to say to me, what do you want? And the Danites said, don't say another word to us or some very angry men will attack you and your family and you will die. Hint, hint, hint. So they say, hey, be careful what you're saying or somebody might kill you in their anger. Now, probably realizing that he's completely outnumbered with a bunch of fellow townspeople going up against 600 fully armed men on the warpath, the Danites went on their their way, and Micah realized that they were too strong to resist, and he turned around and he went home. Now, the Danites took what Micah had made, as well as his priests, and came to Laish, where the people were undisturbed and unsuspecting. Notice how many times... The narrator keeps mentioning that. which The narrator really wants you to know that these Danites are evil. You know, there's two things that God abhors the most. And this is from the prophets. Idolatry and mistreating other people. Especially when powerful people oppress weaker people. God abhors that. Abhors it. And this is exactly what the Danites are doing. They struck them down like Gideon with the sword and burned the city. No one came to the rescue because the city was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. And the city was in the valley near Beth Rehob and they named it Dan after their ancestor who was one of Israel's sons. But the city's name used to be Laish and the Danites worshipped the carved image and Jonathan, descendant of of Gershom, son of Moses, and his descendants served as priests for the tribe of Dan until the time of the exile. They worshipped Micah's carved image the whole time God's the whole time God's authorized shrine was in Shiloh, which means they passed through Shiloh to get to this city. And the point here is that the Danites are doing to their own people what they were supposed to do to the enemy of God. The point is that there is a tabernacle with a fully established God-approved shrine already, and they're literally walking by it with idols in hand and a false priest. The point is that the priest, who is a Levite, not only a Levite, but he is a descendant of Moses, the greatest prophet that has ever lived, and only a handful of generations later, his son is doing some of the worst things in all of Israel. And even more worse because he's a Levite who's held to a greater standard because he knows better. Israel has fallen so far. These are the chosen people of God who are supposed to make God known to the world. 